So, hey, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Cody, special shout out. Welcome home, man. It's good to have you here. Yeah, man. I, uh, I asked Cody to pray for me this week. He said he was excited about coming back. He used some ridiculous terms like what he thought about me and my ranking and the other pastors in his life. I won't tell you what he said, but, you know, not because it's inappropriate, but because I think if I repeat it, it makes me an egomaniac at that point. Cody asked you to pray for me, and I don't know that you knew what you were praying for, so I should, this is a confession. Don't, don't worry about everybody else, it's just you and me. Um, so this is not part of a plan necessarily. Like usually you come in and it's just like, hey, welcome. This is week two of our series on this. This is not that. This is a two impromptu, not part of the schedule sermons. And because of the time of the year and because of where we are in, in our Christmas season, felt like a really good time to talk about Advent. And Advent might not be something that everyone's familiar with. Some people might be like, yeah, Advent, he's just saying Adventist wrong. I'm very familiar with what it is to be an Adventist. Advent and Adventist are a little bit different, but also they're exactly the same all at the same time. Problem is the season of Advent is multiple parts. So uh, when you celebrate Advent, you don't just say like, hey, we're looking forward to, you actually take breaks along the way. There's multiple parts. And so, Cody, this is where it comes back to you. Uh, this is not part of a series, but I only get one shot at this. We're not going through a series. So, uh, Cody, what I asked you to pray for is that I'm going to do, instead of one sermon, I'm going to do four. So buckle up. I got 109 minutes of content. It's going to be a long one. I hope you are, uh, Kinsley bought a blanket, which was really smart, uh, so that's good. No, I, I really do have four sermons, so Cody, I really did need your prayer. Instead of writing one sermon, I decided what would be harder than one sermon, four sermons, but they're four short sermons, dealing with each and every theme within the Advent. So I'm going to walk through a story dealing with the Advent, dealing with a theme of the Advent, and it's just going to be, you know, it's going to follow the same thing, so I'll tell you a piece of scripture, something that's going on in our world, something that's going on in the Bible that is troublesome, and then we'll talk about the grace that comes from the Bible or grace that comes from the world that we can see tangibly, and then I'm going to have a didactic story and or video to go with it, and then I'll pray, and then that sermon's over. Then we'll restart and do the second one, restart and do the third one, restart and do the fourth one, and I'll wrap it up with a conclusion, and we'll move on to our special music. Sound like a plan? Just want to let you know what you're in for, because this isn't going to necessarily feel like the, the plane goes up into the air, it lands, and then I get off the platform. We're going to keep going up, and then down, and then up, and then down, and we're going to take different baggage on, but we'll keep the same people on. Sound good? Good. You guys all shook your head. I just told you I'm going to preach four sermons, and you were like, yeah, 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 sounds good, but also you better not. But I have the microphone, so... I guess we're going to do this. So let's start with this. How many people got a chance, just from the people that are here? Obviously, I can't see you at home, but please do feel free to play along. It makes you feel like you're here, too. How many people read the newsletter that came out on Thursday this week? Good, good, good. A couple. The rest of you, shame! No, I'm just joking. Uh, I talk a little bit about the Advent and what the Advent is so that we're aware of what it is we're studying, because the Advent is an event, uh, it was started in the first or in the fourth 
and or fifth century, we're not sure which, uh, the advent was uh, an identity for people to follow and an identity for them to dive into because it was a time of preparation. So the season of advent lasts 40 days. And in those 40 days, new Christians back in the fifth century would fast and they would pray in hopes that they would be ready for their baptism that would come in January. At that time, it was understood as the epiphany. So you were a new believer. You came in and you said, this new guy sounds great, sounds good. I'll figure out how to pronounce his name later. I've got 40 days to do it. I'll be ready by the time we get to the baptismal thing. So 40 days later, they were prepped and they were ready to go. And we take that time and we celebrate it as the Advent today, although we've switched the time. So it used to be 40 days back then. Now it's locked into whatever Christmas is, back it up four weeks. So whenever that is, four weeks before that, this time, uh, it actually starts on a Sunday. So November 29th was the first Sunday of Advent. And it goes four weeks, which will take you up until Christmas Eve, at which point Advent is over and the season of Epiphany begins. Now, I'm using terms that might be problematic, so I want to clear something up right now. Uh, the season of Advent, and I talk about this idea of Epiphany, almost always are connected to some form of Catholicism or some sort of Orthodox Christianity. That's as far into the history as I'm going to go. So anybody who's worried, like, did we suddenly turn Catholic? Like, is that part of the quarantine that, like, can't be Adventist anymore, we got to do Catholic stuff. That's not this. This is just to tell you where this idea came from. So there's your history lesson. Full stop. Now we're talking about the Adventist part of this, the scriptural part of this. Is that all right? Nobody's panicking. Nobody's dialing Ed Barnett right now. If you already have, just invite him to come. It'd be great to have him here. Um, I'm going to teach you three other words as well. Three other words that go with the idea of Advent that will help you, and it might make you feel smarter at your next Christmas party. That's always a good thing, although they're all in Zoom now, so I guess I'll teach you how to type it later. But for now, just know the first word is a Greek word, and the word is proleptic. Everybody try saying proleptic. Good, you nailed it. You all did that in unison somehow. Like this side of the room, I heard the word all at the same time. Nice job. Middle group, get it together. Get it together. Proleptic means the already but not yet, which comes from uh, the identity of prolepsis or, and proleptic is the active uh, participle of that. So proleptic means the already but not yet. And that's something that doesn't necessarily make sense in the sense that like, I knew Cody was coming home, but he wasn't home yet, but I knew that I could bank on him being there. So there was a proleptic understanding of Cody's second coming. Ooh, I made you like into a godlike figure in this story somehow. I'm, I'm, I'm pumping you up today, man. This is a good day for you. Just make sure you walk out of here with a closer relationship to Jesus and not believing you are Jesus, and I think we'll be okay. But the already but not yet, and we think about that in the time of Advent because Advent is twofold. It is both we're charging towards Christmas, so we're excited about the coming of Christ, right? But because... Christ has already come and he has gone, Advent has a second need and a second meaning in that we as Adventists looking forward to the second coming of the Christ who was, who is, and is to come. That sentence, was, is, and is to come, is the identity of prolepsis. Does that work? Everybody got that? Let's try saying it again. Proleptic. Good. 
Good. Now you know Greek. Uh, second word is adventus. Try that one. Adventus. It's always good to feel like you're on the set of like a Roman, I don't know, Spartacus film or something like adventus. It sounds powerful. Uh, in this case, it's Latin, and it means coming or arrival. So something is coming, something is arriving, but also something, this is active and future-facing. It is prolepsis in Latin, adventus, the coming or the arrival of. Uh, let's try that one more time, adventus. Good. Last one, parousia. Parousia, another Greek term. This one means presence. These three things come together to make up our understanding of the advent. Parousia, adventus, proleptic. The already but not yet, the coming and the arrival, and the presence. Both understood before and understood now and to be understood later. Now, the practice of Advent is broken down into four parts. And these are the four things that we're going to focus on today. The first one is hope. The second one is peace. The third is love. And the fourth is joy. Hope, peace, love, and joy. Trying to do one service that doesn't keep you here that long, short, five-minute homilies. I'm going to go ahead and break these things down for you. To give you a piece of it. But again, just like last week, I went through the book of Hebrews, but I didn't go through the book of Hebrews. I went through some of the book of Hebrews. I went through a chapter of Hebrews in hopes that you would go backwards into the first nine chapters and study for yourself. I will not cover in totality hope, love, joy, and peace. So don't hold me to that, but I will hold you to use the rest of the time left in this season to go and study for yourself. This is just me pointing you towards scripture saying, there's some good stuff in there. Let's focus on these four things. I think it'll change how we deal with one another, how we deal with God, and how we deal with ourselves through this challenging season. But in order to do that, uh, let's first pray. Because I'm pretty sure I know how to do this, but I also only have a stack of sticky notes up here, and I'm banking that Cody's prayer that he promised me he would pray would get us all through this. So let's pray again as we start. Father God, uh, as we spend this time in this season getting to know you better through your scriptures, uh, we want to know what it means to have hope, what it means to be loved, what it means to experience peace, and how to emit the same joy that you've brought to this world to those who desperately need it. God, walk with us in these moments. Be with us in this time. Help us to know that your spirit is here and that we are spending time with your son here on this Sabbath. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Patty read through Isaiah, and I'm going to keep referring back to it. Patty, I, we didn't talk about this, but you slowed down at all the parts that I'm going to focus on in a way that works really well, in that there was a run that you did with four different identities of God, and each of those identities fit within the themes of Advent. And I'm going to go through different pieces of them, so that we understand them better. But like I said, the first four of, uh, first of the four is that of hope. And so we're going to talk about hope in this case. And I'm going to do it using Isaiah 40. And I'm going to start in verse 9. And I said this last week, but for anybody who wasn't here last week, usually when I give out scripture, I want you to look it up too. So it's, you're not just trusting that what I'm saying is scripture. 
But anybody who's in the room will notice that none of the Bibles are in the pew backs, and that's because we took them out. We weren't sure at the beginning of the pandemic if that was a cool thing to have people pass Bibles around. Plus, we had the Sunday church here, a whole bunch of question marks. So we took them out. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you have a digital Bible, if you're at home and you have the internet ready, um, feel free to follow along. This isn't just for me to read to you, but for us to read together. So again, Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to start in verse 9. It says this, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God, See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Amen. Doesn't that feel good to think about God in that way? You're just wandering around. God comes by, scoops you up, holds you close like a teddy bear hand you over to your mother, and then you're just safe. Anybody feeling that this seven months, ten months? Just me? Cool. Okay, well, that's fine. I don't mind. I feel like it's a good thing to be in touch with my emotional state and knowing that I want my mother is totally normal. I think my mom is watching, so that probably makes her feel good, if nothing else. But it's a tough time, right? This is a really tough time to be a human for some of us, tougher than most. For some of us, we've experienced great loss. There's a lot of fear. A lot of things feel like they've been taken away from us in this time. And so to read something like uh, Isaiah 40 and this idea of good tidings, like good news, constant good news. There's only good news that comes from all of this. It's not just said in Zion. It is said from Jerusalem. It is said on top of all of these high mountains that there is good news coming. Lift it up. Do not fear. Man, yes, right now, please, I will take do not fear all day long. God has this might. His arm rules. There's a reward that comes with it. He feeds his flock like a shepherd and gathers a lamb in his arms and carries them in their bosom, gently leading them to the mother sheep. There's nothing but good news in this section. Now, in times of great trials, hope is sometimes found in leadership. Hope is found in guidance. Hope is found in safety. Hope is found in the coming good news. There are tangible answers. And right now, one of the things that feels like it's coming is this idea of this vaccine. Like right now, it does not feel totally normal that I'm wearing a mask and sitting in a room full of people wearing masks. It doesn't always feel like church. It feels like we're bandits in a lot of ways, like getting together to talk about crime we're going to commit later, knowing that's not what's happening, but that's what it feels like every once in a while. This idea of a vaccine that's coming, something good, something that will get us out of this situation that we are stuck within. Unfortunately, for us to understand what hope is, we have to first begin by understanding what it means to be hopeless. Now, it's a time in which we're talking about the Advent, so it's about Jesus. So I figured we should talk a lot about Jesus. And that's how we're going to start this story today. In that 
Jesus is the reason for the season, but there's also another understanding of what comes next because of Jesus, what happened while Jesus was here, and what we understand about Jesus before he came and while he was with us. So this idea of prolepsis is going to hit a couple of different ways and a couple of different times. So prolepsis first begins with what is and what is to come. Story of Jesus happens early in that there is a prophecy of what Jesus is before Jesus is. And I'm going to direct, we're going to go through a lot of Isaiah. So we're going to flip a couple of pages and we're going to go to Isaiah uh, 53 in this case. Um, so Isaiah, Old Testament, clear. Jesus is not in the Old Testament. Jesus is in the New Testament. So this is why this is super important to think about what we're hearing about this person who doesn't yet exist. Isaiah 53, I'm going to go from verse uh, 1. And it says, who, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Sound familiar? Jesus, the Christ, brought up in the book of Isaiah before he exists here on earth. And there we see, especially in verse 3, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity. That is Jesus. That's the Jesus that we are studying through in this Advent. Jesus before, during, and after his life. This identity of prolepsis found here in prophecy in Isaiah 50, 53. So this idea of what it means to be hopeless doesn't necessarily start with us. It's not one of those like, because you're hopeless, there is hope. It's better than that. It's because you are hopeless and because you worship a God who understands suffering, who understands your iniquities because he too has them, there is hope. Did we see that difference? It's a big one. It's an important one in that we're not just alone in this. We're following a God who walked us through it knowing that he had been there too. So his life and the intimate knowledge of suffering, this intimate knowledge of despair helps us to understand how to get through it in ourselves. Now, unfortunately, he's not done. Um, despair continues to follow him. I'm going to skip through his entire life. I'm going to take us into the book of Mark. We're in chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 32. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little further, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if he were possible, that an hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus, again, showing us at the end of his life what it means to suffer, what it means to have this hope in something that could be, knowing that it probably won't happen. God, take this from me. I don't know that I want to suffer this death. In agony, he's praying. He understands what it means to be hopeless. And then his life continues, albeit for a very short time. Further in the book of Luke, chapter 22, it says, 
Verse 44, in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground, praying so much the blood is seeping from his pores. This man understands what it means to be hopeless and his life ends and we would think to yourself, man, Jay, you're telling the story about hope, but all you're doing is explaining hopelessness. Like there's not actually a good part. And then unfortunately, sometimes the context doesn't help you understand it. I'm going to take us all the way to Jesus's last words before he dies. And you're going to think that's, that's where the hope is found because it seems like that's where the hope ends. But I want to point you to this, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Amen? It's one of those, like, tough hallelujah moments. Not like... We know we're getting a senior pastor. Jeff Patterson is coming to be our senior pastor. Amen? Amen. That one's easy. That one's super simple. Maybe it's super easy for me because him coming means I get to do other parts of ministry that I haven't been able to do for a long time. Amen. Jesus dies on the cross. Amen? I'm with you, Anise. That idea of that amen, it is good news, but it also seems like it's not. Yet still, there is hope. And the hope is an understanding that Jesus, in his last words, says, I, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Which means one very simple burden of truth. That this is not the end. That Jesus dying on the cross is not the end of the story. That your death, however tragic, is not the end of the story. But the start of a second part of a more glorious story. A more hopeful story. This is not the end because there is still hope. Cautionary tale. A cautionary piece of awareness. Looking through the life of Jesus, the story of Christ, and the life that he lived... Understand this, hope that glows dimly still glows. Hope that glows dimly still glows. I want to read you this story, the didactic story. I'm not sure there's any truth to it, but it certainly helps understand uh, this story in our form today. It says, there was a young woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and been given three months to live. So as she was getting her things in order, she contact, contra, contacted her pastor and had him come over to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which song she wanted sung at the service, which scriptures she would like to read, which outfit she wanted to be buried in. Everything was in order, and the pastor was preparing to leave when the young woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that? came the pastor's reply. This is very important, the young woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? The young woman asked. Well, to be honest, I am puzzled by the request, said the pastor. The young woman explained, my grandmother once told me the story, and from that time on, I've always tried to pass along its message to those I love and to those who are in need of encouragement. 
In all my years of attending socials and dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful and with substance. So I want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The pastor's eyes welled up with tears of joy as he hugged the young woman goodbye. He knew this would be one of the last times he would see her before her death, but he also knew that the young woman had a better grasp of heaven than he did. She had a better grasp of what heaven would be like than many people twice her age, with twice as much experience and knowledge. She knew that something better was coming. At the funeral, people were walking by the young woman's casket. They saw the cloak she was wearing and the fork placed in her right hand. Over and over, the pastor heard the question, what's with the fork? And over and over, he smiled. During his message, the pastor told the people of the conversation he had with a young woman shortly before she died. He also told them about the fork and what it symbolized to her. He told the people how he could not stop thinking about the fork and told them that they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it either. He was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you ever so gently that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, hope overcomes, hope heals, hope restores, hope inspires, hope conquers, hope frees. Help us to hope as your son did. Remind us, God, that the yet best is yet to come. Amen. Isaiah 9. The Prince of Peace, the second of the model within the Advent, and sermon number two in our four-part one-service series. This identity of peace through the Prince of Peace is helped further, further illustrated back again in Isaiah. So we're going back to Isaiah 40, only this time we're going to read verses 1 through 5. So it starts like this. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, peace comes in many forms, but it is readily experienced as a calm after going through a storm, which fits well into this understanding of God not only being our hope, but being somebody who understands what it means to be hopeless. The problem with peace is that when is it experienced in its different levels, it's not always fair. Now, think about this story. You're in this scene where something very tumultuous, a winding path suddenly has been made straight, like a highway, they say. In this highway, there are no more mountains to climb. There are no more valleys to drop into. Matt, I think of these moments when I'm reading through scripture of us climbing up and down mountains and just dying, like being so tired in ways I was never experienced before. 
I, all I thought was of this verse while we were hiking. Matt and I went on a backpacking trip a, a couple of months ago, and it was terrible. Matt did great. Matt had a great time. Me, on the other hand, carrying too much weight, both on my person and on my back, did not have the same experience. All I could think of was this message of what would it mean to be in this moment and have all of the mountains suddenly flatten and all of the valleys suddenly rise up, and then you're just walking straight, oh, to be in a place like that. But no, instead... Matt took us up trails that went, am I exaggerating, Matt? Like the grade was this steep? Was that right? Steeper. Yeah, he said steeper. You can't hear him from the back. He said it was way steeper and way harder, and I'm strong. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate all those compliments you totally said out loud. Peace is best experienced while in the midst of strife, coming after a battle, coming after a storm. But like I said, peace is not always fair. Because we see here in this story, it says in verse 5, all people shall see it together. Now think about that for a second. That sounds like a good thing to say amen to, right? All of us will see peace, amen? Yeah, amen. But then you really think about it. Who is the one person in your life that you know that you've struggled with for a really long time? And you think to yourself, I wish I could just call a truce in that moment. But knowing that I'd call a truce means that not only would I get rest, but so would they. Like that peace and that strife doesn't always seem fair because that person did something to me. That person has hurt me. I need some time. But they should continue to fight. They should still be sweaty by the time I come back to this battle. But that's not how peace works. Peace works in a way that is unfair. And we see this in Matthew uh, the uh, chapter 20, the laborers in the vineyard, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this the least, to the least, to the last of the same that I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, I've had this moment, uh, not in the sense that I own vineyards and I hire people to work in them, but in the sense that I don't always think of peace as the same level for everybody. Uh, I didn't tell my wife this. I'm telling a story that she has no idea about. This is something that just happened in my head. But not too long ago, it was a couple of weeks ago, while um, I was stopped in a Starbucks, there was a man who was in front of me. The man was very clearly homeless. He was walking very slow, and he was trying to get in line. And as he paced his way to the line, 
I grew impatient because I was busy and I had to go somewhere and I needed to get my stuff done. So he ambles forward. He goes to get something. He orders it. He ambles back. And because of social distancing, we're all waiting for him to clear out of this space because you've got a snake through the line that he's now standing within. Woman in front of me gets the line. She makes a purchase. She gets a gift card at the end of her purchase. She turns around. She hands the gift card to the man. She said, this is for you. She went to go pick up her drink. She picks up her drink and left. The man, now aware of the fact that he has a gift card, ambles back to get more. And his first question is, how much is on the gift card? And I hear the barista say, it's $25. And then he begins to pick out more items. And he ambles away. Now, this is a confessional moment. Thankfully, this isn't going on the internet for all eyes to see forever. But here's the thought that went through my head. My wife is sitting outside in our vehicle. This man is going to leave this place. He's going to go outside. And my wife, who has a bleeding heart so big and pumping so many gallons of empathy, is going to see this guy, and she's going to want to help him. And I need to be ready to explain to her why we don't need to help him. Because he just got this $20 gift card. He's already been served. He's got what he needs. And I'm going to tell that to my wife so she doesn't feel tempted to give him more. That all made complete sense in my head. Like complete, I, it was ironclad. This made a ton of sense. There are other people to help. We can help other people. We don't need to help this person. But what a weird idea. And I won't ask for anybody else to like commiserate with what I'm doing. My hope is that you don't. My hope is not that like you heard this and be like, yeah, me too. Because that probably means there's probably something wrong with both of us. And not that I feel a little bit better that we're in this together. I think we do that with grades, especially. Anybody ever done that? I, Cody, you're the only student really here. So I'm going to pick on you again. But you ever had that moment where you get a test back and you look at the score and it's low? You don't. Never mind. I'll pick somebody else. I'll pick, I'll pick that random kid in the back who's invisible to everybody. That kid in the back who you always get that low score, and then you look to somebody else, and you think, what'd you get? And that person goes, oh, not good. And it makes you feel a little bit better. You're like, oh, me too. That's not a good thing. I love that, like, that, yeah, I've done that before, but also, like, that's not a good thing. It's never, like, you shouldn't feel better that other people failed too. The goal is to lift everybody up. And unfortunately, in that moment, I had that not scripture moment. This person, while I'm way up on this mountain, looking down using high-powered binoculars to somebody who's living far, far down in the valley, I see that person get something, and I think, good, they've been served. Now we don't have to help that person. But he did not receive peace. He received a plastic gift card with $20 in it. That if we all in that store had decided that day that we were all going to give this person $20, still would not have been enough to bring his valley up to the middle. And me working just a little bit to bring myself further down the mountain doesn't make me level with him. My understanding of peace and equity was out of whack. And thankfully, that's not how God doles out peace. 
Because until every mountain is flattened and every valley is filled and we are walking together on this highway towards God where all are equal to here, then it isn't truly peace. And in those times, I think we settle too soon for what peace can be. And the caution here, the cautionary tale, is that peace, like truth, like truce, means both sides of conflict experience reprieve, regardless of merit. Now we see this uh, in many ways, like I said, peace is doled out in many ways, <clears throat> and it's delivered in many forms to settle the most uneven ground and make plain the rough, rough terrain. Peacemakers are often found in the places that we often forget to look. Believing peace to be the work of seasoned diplomats, skilled and experienced disciples, but inasmuch as it is true that blessed are the peacemakers, so too does Jesus declare that to enter the kingdom, you must become like children. And that is where we find our didactic story number two. Emmanuel, will you do me a favor? Will you play video number one for me? Everybody knows the top award for any kid is to be named one of next smartest kids in Colorado. A slightly less prestigious award is to be named Times Kid of the Year. Now, Gitanjali Rao has earned both of those accolades. The 15-year-old from Lone Tree in Colorado has been featured on our show before today. And now she comes back to talk about science, her future, and her new magazine cover. My story, I guess I'm only 15 years old, so there's not that much of a story. Kennedy, how cool is that? How cool are you? My name is Gitanjali Rao, and I go to school at STEM School Highlands Ranch. Where are you right now? Um, I'm in Denver, Colorado. You have a brilliant mind, clearly. I was named as America's top young scientist in 2017, one of the Forbes 30 under 30 in 2019. I was named as a time top young innovator and received the EPA Presidential Award. Um, and now I'm Times Kid of the Year of 2020. What inspired you about that? I think it was the idea that there were so many children being affected by lead and drinking water, and I just thought it was unacceptable. A lot of the problems that I solve and a lot of the problems that I look towards solving are things that have either happened to me or family, friends, or things that I've seen evidently. For example, Colorado has the highest rate of teen suicides. So, you know, that hitting very close to home, I decide to come up with a way to detect cyberbullying at an early stage and potentially prevent it with my latest service, Kindly, based on artificial intelligence technology. <laughs> I cannot believe how young you are. What's your plan for the future? With the pandemic, it's definitely a new experience. I did not think I'd be doing high school off of my computer, but if we're able to figure this out now, we can prevent pandemics in the future and make sure that nothing like this COVID-19 pandemic ever happens again, which is so exciting for the developments in vaccine and medical technology. Like we all have this one common goal and I want to see that. I want to see that continuing to happen. The whole world motivated towards one thing and that's creating a better future for our planet, creating a better earth. And anybody can do it, no matter their age, no matter where they're from, anyone can be an innovator. <laughs> what a wonder kid. How wonderful is that? Katanjali has also been involved in a scouting program called STEM Scouts for seven years and was named National STEM Scout of the Year in 2018. She's going to need a really big trophy case. As for what's 
she's been looking to do next. She's been looking into biotechnology programs at MIT, Stanford, and Harvard, but is, you know, still considering all her options. Good for her. Any institution will definitely be lucky to have her. How wonderful. Cody, remember that time where I said, don't leave here with a big ego? Deflates that real quick. 15 years old, living in Lone Tree, fixing bullying, the Flint water crisis. It was amazing. Bringing peace to people when she felt as though they weren't experiencing enough peace. People she didn't know, people she may never meet. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's pray. God, let there be peace with us. Peace like God's quiet within the noise. Peace like God's hope within the uncertainty. Peace like God's rest within the toil. Peace like God's presence within our souls. God, let there be peace with us. Amen. Theme number three, love. In Isaiah 9, we read of the everlasting Father. And because it's Christmas, we should spend a little bit of time talking about the Christmas story. Now, I don't get to preach on the Christmas story, so I'm going to glance off of it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to a public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she born a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, usually we read the story of like the coming of Jesus, and we're like, it's awesome. There's this baby, and there's all these good news, except for, you know, the whole there's no room at the inn, and he's born in a barn, and he's born to this woman who's unmarried and all the problems that come with that societal issue. But I don't know that I've ever really stopped to think about this story as it regards to Joseph, in that Joseph, the engaged to be with Mary, made a plan to divorce her. Anybody ever read that before? Is that just news to me? I feel like it shouldn't be. I feel like I should have known this the whole time. But when I read this through this story of love, it changed the dynamic for me quite a bit, in that this person, Joseph, was not supposed to be a part of this story, had made plans not to be a part of this story, had decided this isn't for me. I thought I loved her. Turns out, uh, not into it. I'm ready to be done, and I'm going to move on. And it's not until an angel intervenes that we see the story start to switch, and we think about love in a different way because of it. Going back to the book of Genesis, we see love in a different way. This idea of what it means to think that there's a right path, that there's a straight path, but then something gets in your way like it did for Joseph. Genesis chapter 32, we read a story about Jacob starting in verse 22. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, 
and cross the ford of the Jabbok. Not a story you could write today. This would be a little bit harder to talk about then. But using the societal principles back then, it says, He took them and he went across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him <clears throat> until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and jo Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, you will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with the Lord and with humans, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So, mixed martial arts in scripture for Cody. Just a little wrestle, wrestling match right in the middle of scripture, talking about what it means to wrestle with God. Not a straight path by any regards, but one that leads to love, one that leads to a blessing. But love is not always a straight line between two points. Warren Barfield wrote a song where he says, love is not a fight, but it is something worth fighting for. Case in point, Joseph and Mary. Case in point, Jacob and Esau, or at least Jacob and this angel here. And also, uh, a pair of people I want you to meet named Dick and Rick Hoyt. What it means to wrestle for love. Emmanuel, do me a favor, hit video number two, please. Morning, Rick. How you doing? How you feeling this morning, huh? Feeling good? This answer has two parts. First, our first race was to show someone who had an acquired disability that life goes on, and he could lead a productive life. The second reason for running is to be an inspiration to others, you see. It gives me a great feeling inside to see other families run with their family member with a disability, or for people without disabilities to push people who are disabled in races. Rick was attending uh, a basketball game, and they made an announcement that one of the cross players from the college was in an accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down. So they're going to have a charity road race to try to help him raise some money so he could pay his medical bills. Well, Rick came home from that basketball game, and he said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know that life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. Well, at the time, I was 40 years old. I was not a runner. But we went down to the race, and we finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. When we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears, which was a very powerful message to me. If you think about it, somebody can't talk, use their arms and their legs, and now they're out there running. The disability disappears. 
We have finished 1,091 race events in 34 years including 252 triathlons, 6 of which are Ironman distances, 70 marathons including 30 Boston marathons, 94 half marathons, and 155 5K races. When we first started running, I used to run for Rick, but now I'm out there running because we run together as a team. And it's got him in the best shape of his life, and it's got me in the best shape of my life that I've ever been in. You know, I'm 73 years old. Rick is 51 years old. He still can't talk, use his arms and his legs, but he's graduated from Boston University. He lives all by himself in his own apartment. And Rick and I have competed in over 1,000 athletic events in the past 34 years. We are affecting people all over the world, and they're out competing because of us. They're out there running. It's just amazing to us that it's happened. This coming year is going to be our 31st Boston Marathon, and there's going to be a life-size bronze statue of us at the starting line. From the doctor saying he's going to be nothing but a vegetable, now he's going to be a bronze statue. It doesn't come any better than that. We're Team Hoyt, and we run for the people who think they can't run. False start. Joseph wrestled. Jacob wrestled. And the Hoyts wrestled, all for this identity of love, not a straight line, often a winding road. Like you said, 31 straight Boston marathons, the last of them being the year that this video was created. That bronze statue was given to them. They've got a miniature that's held on their desk, but it's something that had to be fought for. It did not come easily. So cautionary tale for us today, love is worth fighting for. The bad news is, you may actually have to fight for it. Let's pray. Father God, show us love. Show us love that is patient, love that is kind, love that is not envious, love that does not insist on its own way. God, show us love that is not resentful, Love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love that rejoices in truth. Love that bears all things. Love that believes all things. Love that hopes all things. Love that endures all things. God, show us love that never ends. Show us this love so that we may know this love. Show us this love so we may share this love. Amen. Number four, joy. Isaiah 9, we talk about a mighty God, and a joy that is mighty is something worth looking into to understand for our own worlds. Returning back to Isaiah, this time 52, verses 7 through 9, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels, lift up their voices. Together they sing 
for joy. For in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. I want to tell you a story about a man named John Mason Neal. His life is lived in stark contrasts. He was born in 1818 to an evangelistic home. His dad was a renowned reverend. His mom is a daughter of a, consider, a man of considerate learning, it says. It means he had a bunch of doctorates. He was raised to be a reverend, but he had sympathies towards Rome somehow. He was perpetually ill. Something was wrong with his lungs, but he was also incredibly productive. He was an accomplished theological scholar, but he devoted all of his time to social issues. He was offered a position of becoming the incumbent in a church in Sussex, but unfortunately, his lungs wouldn't allow him to be in anything but an arid place, and Sussex was too wet. And so he became instead, after all of his training, a warden at a retirement home for old, poor men. Neil's work was often ignored by his contemporaries, and yet he is lauded today for his contributions to the church and to the hymnal. He founded the Sisterhood of St. Margaret, but he died before the completion of its building. His entire life lived on either end. He labored in, a, in relative obscurity. But the note here is that by the time of his death in 1866, J.M. Neal was credited with authoring or translating 403 hymns, poems, and prose. Many of his works are still used today in modern hymns, including ours, including number 115, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Forgotten, rejected, set aside, always out of reach of his own dreams, broken, ignored, despised. And still, the refrain he offered, which reads, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. A refrain sung the world around as we approach Christmas to lift the spirits of those who desperately need their spirits lifted the most, to be reminded of a God that is with us. Somehow a proleptic life who understood the already but the not yet is used to bring joy to all of us despite his inexperience of it in his own life. So a cautionary tale. Joy is not always the result of prolonged exhilaration, but it is often found rooted in our spirit, unearthed only by putting our trust in God's truth. Now, Neil was said to be inspired by hymnals of his time, and the hymns that he sang in his evangelistic home will often include works of Isaac Watts, who authored a, an important hymn in 1719. Maybe there's a clue here. Emmanuel, do me a favor. Play me video number three. My mama told me something when I was growing up that has forever changed my life. She played the piano at our little church at 3rd and Pine Street for 37 years. She tried to teach me to play the piano, <laughs> but I wasn't very good. She would teach me the names of the notes what a major key is, what a minor key is. She tried to teach me musical theory, but I was just bored. Then, one day, 
She told me that the best news in the world is found by playing a simple scale on the piano. I had no idea what she meant, so she told me to play an eight-note scale. So I did. I said, how is that good news? And she said I played it incorrectly and that I needed to play it the other way. So I did. Again, I said, how is that good news? And she said, I played it the right way, but I needed to add the pauses. The pauses? She said, the pauses. Add them on the first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. Now, I was frustrated and said, how can eight notes with random pauses be the best news in the world? Then I got up, walked away, and went outside. Frankly, I didn't care what she was talking about. I didn't like playing the piano anyway. Well, years later, my mama got sick and passed away. As I was thinking about her, I remembered what she told me about the piano. Not only that, I still remember the notes she told me to pause. The first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. So I sat down at her piano and played the scale with the pauses. And that's when I realized the good news she was talking about. Christmas scale, written by Isaac Watts, simple in design, but held within its notes, the best news in the world. Joy that has somehow rooted itself in Neil through this hymn is a joy that now lives in us today. Every time we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, give us joy to this world in knowing that you are the one who came and will come again. Give us joy to the earth while fields, floods, rocks, and plains repeat the sounding joy that the Savior reigns. God, rule this world with truth and with grace. Make the nations prove the glories of your righteousness and wonders of your love. May we join the chorus that heaven and nature sings to remind those who need to hear it most that because of you, we experience joy to the world. Amen. So here is the conclusion. An entire sermon series in one service. As Advent season, we are reminded of the God who came and we look forward to the God who comes again. And in the same way, we are, dis we are called to this twofold call that Dietrich von Bonhoeffer gave to us. If you read the newsletter, then you saw the quote. But I got to be honest, I only gave you part of it. Did not give you the whole quote. I held some of it back. The first part of the quote goes like this. It says, in celebration of Advent, the celebration of Advent is only possible to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor, 
and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. But the quote continues. Bonhoeffer says, For these it is enough to wait in humble fear of the Holy One himself who comes down to us. God in the child of the manger, God comes. The Lord Jesus comes. Christmas comes. Christians rejoice. Which in itself is a twofold call. It's this first reminder that God is coming. So Christians, rejoice. This is a good time for us to be together, to sing praises. But also keep in mind, this story in Bonhoeffer's quote separates people. Not everyone is listed here because there are those who are poor in spirit. There are those who are afflicted, those who need a savior. And then there are those Christians who don't, who are in great spirits, who feel as though they need not a savior because they have saved themselves for whatever reason. There is an understanding that we don't need a God, and a God who doesn't come isn't such a big deal, because right now I am prospering and I'm doing well. But then there's an also, there's a list of people who are not Christians, who are not counted in this, which means there's separation still. There's separation between the God who was, who is, and is to come, and there's a difference between those who are, who need to be, and have not yet known the good news of Christ. Which means today is a good day to rejoice. It's a good day to sing a song. And in a minute, we're going to bring some friends up to play a song written by a man who did not fully understand joy and yet was able to translate it so perfectly on the page. So this is our conclusion. This is the thing that we walk out on. This is the thing that we work towards. Knowing that we're not going to cover Advent here, at least officially, from the pulpit as part of our messages. But you've got a couple of weeks left. Shout out to Sean Dolan. I got a chance to look at my text on the way in. I messed something up earlier. There's a time of Advent, and then there's a time of Christmastide, and then there's the Epiphany. So actually, you get a 14-day kicker in there as well. So at the end of Advent, you get 14 more days to celebrate Christ, and then Epiphany starts. Thank you, Sean, for that correction. I appreciate you. You have time. We have time to do this. We have time to rejoice. We have time to rest. We have time to understand hope in our own lives to take peace and make it a part of us, to take joy, to work it into everything that we're doing, and to take love and not only know it, but share it. Because there is a reason for the season. That reason is Jesus. Amen? Amen. But there are reasons for this season, and this season's different. This season means we're very separate. We are divided. We don't feel as close as we always do. There are plenty of reasons not to share hope and love and peace and joy. But don't let any of those reasons change the reasons for this season. Because we need it desperately this year. We need to share hope and share love, to share peace, to share joy. And thankfully, these items aren't things that come in short order. So let's not be the kind of people that hoard these items like we did toilet paper and paper towels. Because you don't have to do a big thing. I'm not here to say you have to run 31 Boston marathons or that you need to make decisions about the coming of different people into your life and the, the warfare that comes with it. You don't have to do big things. Don Marsh said this last night on the prayer call. It could be as simple as lending somebody a cold drink of water or a smile. But do something. Because those two guys are done running. The story of Joseph is finished. 
which means it's time for someone else to pick up the torch on their way out. And that's you. And that's us. And so as we close, be reminded of that. Take the Sabbath and rest and enjoy the things that come with this season of Advent. But then take those things and walk them outside and share them with the people who desperately need it. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your hope. We're thankful for your peace. God, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your joy. God, help us to take these things and not just identify with them, but to make them a part of everything that we do for the people who need it, for the people who are represented here, for the people who are good without you, for the people who have never met you before. Give us peace like a river. Give us joy like a river. And let our love flow like a river from this place out into the world you've called us to. In your name we pray.